Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I'm Joel, and today I'm joined by Jennifer Garvey Berger. And I asked Jennifer this question if you were going to design a cutting edge program, a curriculum that trained leadership coaches to be effective in our times coaching leaders, what would you put inside of that curriculum? And so our conversation today will explore Jennifer's notions, thoughts, ideas about what would need to be included in that curriculum. We'll also touch into some of the big ideas from her most recent book, Unlocking Your Complexity Genius, which I really recommend. I really enjoyed that. Jennifer is the founder and CEO of Cultivating Leadership, a firm which is on the front line of developing leaders in our times. She's a prolific author, great books such as Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps, Simple Habits for Complex Times, and Changing on the Job. She is a highly sought-after executive coach and also a trainer of coaches, so we are in great hands today. And just to say before we dive in, please check out our website, coachesrising.com. You can find some of the acclaimed online trainings that we offer there for coaches. And you can also join our ever-growing community of transformational coaches by putting your name in the sign-up box you find on the homepage there. So you can stay in the loop about all things we create, which are not this podcast. All right, that all being said, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Jennifer Garvey Berger. So uh, Jennifer, uh, always a pleasure to have you on the podcast and, uh, you know, I've been delighting in seeing the beautiful pictures you showed me of where you are right now in the South of France. Like how's things going for you today? It's amazing. It's amazing. I had the most beautiful walk this morning. It's the first really frosty day here and it looks like everything has been dipped in glitter. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, you showed me the pictures are totally stunning. So um, maybe we should do like a conversation about that one time, you know, living in community and the lessons learned. Cause I think, you know, uh, I've been reflecting on the necessity for that actually, as we move forward in time and, you know, the uncertainty and the crises we face and the necessity for like solid tight community and relationships. I don't know. It has been. Yeah. Yeah. It has been, it has been amazing. I'd love to talk about it. So, um, yeah, if you want, you could get a couple of us, we could all talk about it and you could hear from more than just me. Great. Great. Well, actually I'm going to dive in. This, this question I want to ask you first is, uh, we're going to talk a bit about your most recent book today as well, but I just posed this question to you before and it is like, if you, you know, you do a lot of leadership coaching and you train coaches and you, you work with leaders in organizations and, so I just wanted to ask you, if you were to design now uh, your own like leadership coaching program uh, to equip coaches, you know, with what you feel are like, this is just what leaders need. This is the way you want to be working with them in these times. Like, What kind of things would you put in that program? Oh, it's such a good question, Joel. So I think the first thing coaches need to be able to do is see themselves so that they're not constantly projecting their stuff onto other people. So mm-hmm. there would have to be a big line of uh, self-inquiry and understand what they are most likely to project on other people so that they can um, notice it. Because I think we we don't so much get away from projecting, but we can notice that it's our projection. So 
I, I think there would be some hearty line about that. Uh, that would probably take some, probably take us the rest of our lives, right? This <laughs> this line should never run out. This should be, this should be a a way we now interact with the world is through a line of self inquiry. Um, do you mind if I ask you about that before? Yeah, yeah. Maybe you, because um, yeah, I think it's brilliant you bring that up. And how have you worked with that in your own? kind of development and practice and yeah you know like how, do you see like common ways that you or other coaches do project onto their clients oh my goodness i mean yes <laughs> <laughs> uh so for me this uh the adult development work has been incredibly helpful in a kind of self-inquiry way it's the way i use it more than anything else is to be able to just notice that my noticing is itself patterned, you know, and that the the things that I pick up on or the things that that trouble me or that delight me are themselves coming from a kind of internal system that I'm also creating. and and having that as a as a line of inquiry, like what's the shape of that system? that's creating these, these stories, these reactions, these emotions, what's going on with that internal meaning making system that has just been, I mean, that kind of never gets old, right? That is a, an interesting inquiry that's going to be interesting forever. And as I inquire into myself and I inquire into my clients, probably my clients are my other biggest source of learning because you know when you're in a kind of deep meaning making space with somebody else and their meaning making becomes visible to you your meaning making also becomes more visible to you and so uh that dance of our two meaning makings is pretty extraordinary and then as a leader myself in this in this firm that a couple of friends and I started some years ago um, oof, being a leader is a constant source of challenge, difficulty. You know, every time something that looks like a difficulty arises, uh, there's something to look at there. I love Thomas Hubel's idea that a difficulty arising is like a sign of an edge in me. And um, I've really taken that to heart. And then the world becomes a real source of um, teaching because every time you see a difficulty, you think, oh, there I am. There's some edge there for me to explore. And that is also a really interesting inquiry. Mm. Yeah. And what I like as well about Thomas is he's inviting us to not see that edge as something that's in the way you know, like, um, oh, if I just get that difficulty out of the way, then I'll be in the right place. But actually, no, that that is the way. I know it sounds maybe kind of obvious, but it's so subtle that we we can feel that with these edges and frustrations. It, it, it's such a beautiful reframing. If we think of ourselves as going from here to a particular destination, anything that gets in the way of that destination is annoying, right? Or we're an or we are annoying for me. It like mostly looks like that. Like, ah, look at me again. 
But if we see ourselves in this constant process of unfolding and we say, okay, this is what my life is going to look like forever. I am going to be in this process of unfolding from now until forever, until I die. And um, then these things come up and you think, oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I didn't see that before. Now I see a whole new thing. And yeah, so this this kind of form of self-inquiry um, guided by teachers, profound, you know, I've had these profound teachers in my life, teachers, therapists, coaches, um, friends who are teachers, therapists, and coaches. Uh, and um, yeah, that's a, that's an amazing, it, it, it's amazing to believe that this is a, a, a line we can follow forever. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, because like on just tying that to this thing about projection that you mentioned, uh, I've been thinking about that, you know, and, um, you know, like sitting with it as an inquiry, as I'm with my clients, as they come in and, you know, they might say like, this is the, this is where I'm at and this is what I want to explore today. And, um, and noticing my biases, you know, like, to, like a bias towards depth that I have, you know, and um, so uh, you know, am I like wanting to kind of stay where they are or like, you know, can take it deeper in inverted commas, you know? And I think why I'm bringing that up is because I'm curious what you think about, you know, really meeting the client where they are uh, or, you know, like sometimes we can, you know, invite them on a particular journey, which might sh stretch them or reframe like what the actual topic is about and what would most serve them in a way. And, you know, untangling inside of that what is projection and what is, you know, skillful seeing is a, is a really intricate dance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and how often can we invite our clients into that question? You know, your clients choose you to coach them because they have a different kind of conversation with you than they have with anybody else in their lives, I'm sure. And so, you don't want to give them the ordinary conversation that they have that they're used to having. That's not that's not the point of your relationship. And at the same time, you don't want to be constantly pushing your agenda on them. So, as you say, it is a kind of a dance. And uh, if you notice, if you don't notice its projection, then you have thoughts like, "Well, that's annoying that he just won't go there." Like, what a shallow guy. Right. Like that's the thought that arises. Um, but if you think, oh, this is my thing, like I love this depth thing. He clearly loves something else. Then you can say, hey, my inclination is to go deeper here. And I feel you not wanting to go deeper. Do you want to have a conversation about that? Do you want to follow me deeper? Do you want to tell me what's going on with you today? Like, you know, so that then the noticing, instead of being a critique of this other perfectly beautiful human that's in front of you becomes a thing you can talk about together. And that's, that's awesome. That is, I, I think that is coaching at its, um, you know, at its most alive when it's unfolding right in that moment, because you know, you're not the only person who's ever had that experience of this guy who I just made up. Right. Um, but that that would happen to others. So 
yeah, one of the things I notice is if I have a client who's brilliant and I feel kind of stupid, um, I can, I can bring that in now. I can say I'm, I'm kind of feeling on the back foot right now, which is an unusual feeling for me in one of these coaching sessions. And I'm wondering, this might be me. It might be what I had for breakfast. It might be whatever, but I wonder if this is an experience that other people have with you. And, you know, do you want to talk about that? And then that just opens up a huge new vein of exploration for both of you, I think. I I think I just want to underline that is so important what you're sharing now. I think that's what, you know, makes coaching great is when you're, you're able to, you know, see what it's like to be in contact with the person with you and reveal that, you know, without attachment to a, that you're, you know, not good enough or that you're right. And then just see where it takes you so powerful. So love you sharing that. Yeah. And the big thing for me is, is this question of like, are my questions good enough to deliver some kind of insight? You know, and I can sometimes feel myself in a coaching session, like, oh, when is this thing going to pop? Like, when is there going to be an insight born right here? Yeah. And, you know, now there are 40, we're 46 minutes into the session. And now we're 52 minutes into the session. There's been like no major moment. And I like, that's, that's me, right? That That is... Because I don't have any idea what kind of insight this actual person has had with me. This person might have had, you know, when I go back and ask my clients, what are the most important insights you've had over the past six months? They named things I would not have named. I'm like, huh, okay. Oh, okay. That's just, that's the thing that was for you. I didn't even notice that happened between us, right? Okay. So, um yeah, a lot of this self-discovery leads you to believe you don't know as much as you thought you did. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, just bringing it back to the question I asked, I can just see how, you know, exactly what we're talking about right now fits in this whole thing of uh, coaches being able to see themselves in the moment with a, any person they're, they're, they're coaching and and to inquire into that together you know, in a way that can be transformative for both. And so, yeah, maybe like, yeah, what what else would you include in that that curriculum for for leadership coaches? I, I mean, you know me. I I love really beautiful lenses to look through. So I think that there are some to learn a few lenses slash perspectives slash tools, however you think about them. Mm. metaphors, however you think about them, uh, that you can, that can help you see the client and her challenges and also see yourself in relation to the client and her challenges. Um, a, A really good theory kind of pushes you out of your habitual ways of seeing the world and lets you see something else. And so I, I would put in my curriculum, you know, some of the theories that have illuminated my path, I'm sure you have different ones that have illuminated your path, but we could probably gather together 10 mind blowing um, models, theories, ideas 
and, uh, and then learn those deeply and see how do they fit together? How do they fight each other? You know, how do they, how do they really describe different universes and come from a whole different set of theoretical assumptions? Um, and then how do we use them all? Right. How do we, how do we not get stuck in believing that this one or that one is the perfect one and instead say, oh, red shoes are the way to go today. I'm going to wear these red shoes. And then tomorrow I can wear blue shoes, right? Like I can choose which thing to bring to this particular moment as opposed to having one that um, I think we can, you know, we can fall in love with one of these early theories that we love that, that we learn early in our journey. And we can then start to see everything through that theory. I think it's super helpful to be able to take that one off, put it down, pick up another one, use that one for a little while, and then be able to shift. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So it's kind of like a cross paradigmatic approach to uh, how you do your work and yeah, that becoming spacious enough to to recognize like when um when it's time to put one theory down and pick up another and um yeah and now what i like also about what you're saying is that there's then an invitation for the coach to to think like you said oh how how do these theories fit together you know like what is how can i synthesize them and um become bigger than them in the process you know is that, is that kind of like how I'm making sense of it. Does that fit for you as well? Yeah, for sure. Other, otherwise the theories kind of have you, right? You don't have the theories so much. They have you, they exercise you. And, uh, and I think we're always trying to, as you say, be bigger than these theories, even the big ones, right? We're trying to be able to hold them and put them down to choose. Um, and then to also notice when they arise, on their own, which is also its own kind of beautiful thing. But, but we want to be noticing. I think that's the thing we want. We want to, as much as we can be noticing what's going on. There's a, I sometimes fight with myself about this idea of noticing because one of the hallmarks of a flow state is kind of not noticing um, you know, getting lost in and, and that state is awesome, right? Like there's been so much written about it because it's beautiful. And so probably it's a polarity, right? How much can we spend noticing and really being aware of what we're doing, what moves we're making, why we're making them, which really matters. And then it's probably fun to let go and be in flow, for some other time. But once again, I would want us to be able to be able to reflect on, oh, I was in flow in that session, which sometimes means I was at my best and sometimes means I was just not as present, right? That's the thing about flow is sometimes it points to profound presence and sometimes it points a little bit to absence. Mm. Yeah, it makes me wonder if there's a, a way of um, having both be there or not. You know, maybe, maybe that's um, maybe that's not the way to look at it. But uh, yeah, a, a kind of flow that could notice at the same time. Um, 
Yeah, I find that an enticing prospect. I love this idea. What I find interesting as well is it seems like there's a lot of theories about leadership, you know, like, I mean, a lot. That's like an understatement, isn't it? There's like all these notions of leadership, but that um, the danger is, and I think this is what I hear in what you're saying, like that uh, we, we that's simple, it's too simplistic, you know, like we we kind of pick up that theory of leadership and um, we it actually reduces the complexity of the person opposite us or the context that they're in and um, becomes a kind of fixed, reified paradigm as opposed to, I think, what I hear you speaking into, which is like there's something bigger and it's, there's a kind of fluidity to it. And it actually, that's maybe more aligned with the fluid, complex nature, like nature of, of, of uh, you know, experience in general. And that then a theory can be picked up from that place. Uh, so, you know, in a way, like, don't, let's not define what leadership is, maybe. Let's yeah, not let's define have, it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's have you know, all these small windows we can look through into this giant complex space. And each of our theory helps us see, focus in on this or that at the expense of other things, right? I've been playing, I have a new phone and it's got a new camera on it. And uh, it's got a feature that lets you focus on something and it kind of blurs everything out. But anyway, I've been playing with it today, particularly. And and there's a way that when we focus in on something, that thing comes into high relief, but we lose the rest of the we lose the rest of the scene. We lose the details in the rest of the scene. But if we take a picture where everything's kind of in focus, kind of what a lens does automatically is just kind of put everything in focus, you don't really see anything. And so, you know, there's nothing that kind of pops out. And so playing with this is the focal point, that's the focal point, this is the focal point, here I want to see everything, here I want to just look for those things. I think that's super helpful. And I think every time I I certainly mistrust anything that arrives from me as like, oh, this theory is big enough to explain everything. When that happens, when I have that thought, I'm like, oh, there's you craving something that explains everything, right? But there's, every theory is a model, right? And and life is a lot more complex than any model. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and do you, I mean, there's a few different directions we could go in. Like, I am curious about what some of those theories are that you like. Yeah, maybe I'll go there now. Like, what what are, you know, you mentioned we could get 10 of these theories and look at them all. Um, which ones have you cherished or found that you loved or found useful? Uh, so some of my favorite theories, you know, adult development theory is one of the ways I started out. That's kind of my, my first line of study. Uh, anything that helps me understand or make sense of complexity better is something, you know, I love. So something like the Kinevin model, uh, which is learnable at the, at the highest level in, you know, eight minutes. And then, 
will take you the rest of your life to really fully understand. I love a theory like that where you can just learn it right away. And then there are layers in it that never stop feeding you. Um, Alongside that, you want theories of difference, theories of intercultural difference, theories of gender difference, theories that help you understand all these theories sort of un- help you understand that the way you're seeing the world is not the way the world is, right? The, it's the way you're seeing the world. And anything that gets you, I guess this kind of, you see what the things I love are, Any, anything that gets you out of like assuming that the way you see the world is the way the world is, is very helpful. And that gets you better able to be curious about how other people are seeing the world. That's super helpful, I think. Um, and then theories that are expansive in some way that change the way we see all these theories that I've mentioned so far do that. Also things like um, Barry Johnson's polarity model, um, polarity management. I find that transforms the way my clients see the world and how they make sense of things. Um, theories about power. Adam Kahane has a really lovely little book called Power and Love that just completely rocked my world when I when I first read it. Um, I could obviously go on for a long time here, but um, the thing I'm noticing about my theories, which you would want absolutely to augment with somebody else's ideas, um, because these are these are like my faves. Um, is each of them introduces us to a a way of seeing the world and asks us which way is habitual for you. And then can you pan out and can you see a broader system than the system that you're automatically seeing and what would you notice and what would become possible? And that, that whole enterprise is my favorite enterprise so yeah i wonder if that's almost like um a meta competency you know i know i know you know you mentioned uh the kenevan model dave snowden's kenevan model he's been critical i think of the notion of competencies but i wonder if there are like you know i think he's also been critical of the idea of putting meta in front of everything you know, Dave <laughs> likes to be critical of a lot of things, but it's like one of his favorite pastimes. But um, yeah, I wonder, you know, like as I hear you speak there, is like, is it almost like a meta competency of of um, noticing uh, a certain type of noticing in the moment so that one cultivates a kind of, you know, um, yeah, what would be the word like a, a certain kind of revelation or realization that expands oneself? Or be, yeah, yeah, or a certain kind of orientation towards curiosity, to noticing that when a thought arises, you know, it's a thought, and you don't you don't want to believe everything that you think, right? You want you want to be able to um have a relationship to it and you want to be able to you want to be able to see it and maybe some of the most useful theories are really idiosyncratic because they rely on 
ungrooving us from the deepest grooves. You know, theories of power were not that interesting to me um, uh, because I didn't see power. I, I had no relationship to it. And I was so completely blind to it that I was not interested in these theories of power. And then as a as a leader, people kept telling me it was a little bit messed up about this issue. And I kept saying, like, it doesn't exist. And I, I think that that's a, I think that's a really useful way for us to understand, you know, when we think, oh, something doesn't exist or there's no merit in this idea. Um, what are we not seeing in us that makes us kind of toss that thing away? You know, for years, I didn't play with the Enneagram because the the theoretical basis for the Enneagram, like the science of it, is not, that's not the thing that it does best, right? And then one day I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Like you made science king there, right? You There are probably things other than science that are also offer insight, Um and so I needed to question that whole belief system of what makes something useful or real. And and in so doing, I, I found a piece of myself that I didn't really notice, which is like this very evidence-based, research-based kind of um, preference, um, which is half a polarity. Right. And, um, and so even finding those things that we're not drawn to can be helpful in helping us understand what we might be blind to actually. I think this is really beautiful. How do you listen for that in the leaders that you coach, you know, like something like power or, you know, uh, a bias towards science, whatever that might be in there you know, coaching kind of well, their, their life, you know, and how that's showing up in their leadership. How do you listen for those kind of big topics? I mean, aversion is really helpful. You know, what pisses you off in other people? What what do you feel scorn or contempt for? Right? These are very helpful markers of what is it that that's kind of the bedrock of our belief system that is in some way threatened by something else. Um, and it's also, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that there isn't also just crap out there, right? Like sometimes you don't like something because it's not good. <laughs> yeah. But if you have a pattern of not liking things, um, you know, I now find the Enneagram super helpful, actually. It's got all kinds of interesting pieces in it that might not be very sciencey, but they're they're very useful, right? Um, and I see new things when I look through that lens. Um, you know, when when you notice a a pattern of aversion across a variety of things, um, that I think is when it's it's helpful. If if it's just one thing, you might just think that's just a bad. It's just an annoying meeting or a frustrating theory or, you know, somebody I disagree with or whatever. 
But again, we're back at difficulty, right? And each of those things is a difficulty that probably has something to teach you. And I, I think this is what this brings up for me is the connection between um, development and, and shadow work. You know, like one thing we talked about on the podcast quite a bit recently is, uh, you know, ascending and descending. So like Tom Murray uh, and Spring Cheng were talking about, you know, there can be a bias towards developing, ascending, developing, and actually there's a lot of kind of development that can, can arise like naturally, organically out of this, you know, um, I don't know, I can't remember the phrase they had for it, but it's kind of like a, you know, you descend and there's a decomposing, decomposting uh, and a kind of um, um, finding health, I guess, in, in that process. And, and so I'm just wondering about, the relationship between between what you're talking about and shadow work like is that shadow work or is it different is it like you know i could imagine it could be developmental too it, it maybe yeah yeah it's so interesting this you know how are we making sense of these words because i think shadow work is profoundly developmental um because we're we're sort of learning new realms Right? Isn't isn't this isn't this what what our human unfolding is really about? It's about making sense of and learning to understand and interact with more realms, uh, the realm of our shadow. This um, this idea of one of the things I hear in Spring's work is also the um, the growth of rest right? The growth of not growing <laughs> um, and uh, and the way that itself is a, is, is a piece of the whole system of unfolding um, that matters profoundly, matters profoundly. And, and we we kind of can't see the fullness of our own possibility unless we give into all of these different explorations. Uh, I've been thinking about how, um, you know, there's like um, individual shadow work and then there's almost like a collective shadow piece right now. In particular, maybe this has always been the case and the human beings are like, oh, right now it's like, you know, we live in these, you know, crazy times, but it, some of the, you know, like you, you talked about the growth of not growth. So uh, what are these like deep societal beliefs we might hold that are like born out of modernity that are actually, we're kind of questioning right now this, that they've, they've kind of privileged some things and they've peripheralized other things. And that does feel like the time we're in, it's like, uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm just curious about like for you, how you see, you know, maybe that gets onto this idea of systemic work as well with co in, inside of coaching, but how do you see the necessity to, let, let me just add one more little piece and then I'll tip. So um, it's like we're coaching people within a certain paradigm, like of modernity and what, what responsibility does a coach have to have one foot outside of that paradigm 
and to maybe even be challenging certain sort of notions that people hold with inside of organizations, you know, like growth at all costs or whatever they might be uh, that might actually, um, you know, would they lead to that company being more effective within that paradigm or, or not? So there's a kind of moral, ethical, societal, systemic sensitivity play. I've, I've thrown a lot at you there. So just, yeah. That was not a softball question at all. <laughs> um, so I, I'll just riff with you because it seems like that was kind of a riffing. So I think these trends of questioning the thing that society has been built on before, I think this happens. And I think, I think we're in one now. And as you said, maybe people are always in one, but we notice this one a lot because we're the ones in it. I don't know. This I don't know. Um, but yes, you can see it looking back. You can see, oh, here's, you know, the enlightenment. You know, here's a here's a time, the 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 industrial revolution, right? Like we even describe these eras where basically people look at what they used to think about the world and they say, Oh, that that was partial. And the problem is then they they say, but this thing, this thing is complete, right? Like before we didn't believe in science. Now we know that science is the answer to everything. Um, and, and if we could just leave off that second part of the sentence, I think we would be in better shape. We'd be in better shape with one another and we'd be in better shape with ourselves actually. Um, and so the, the question should a coach be able to do that and help people have these um help kind of hold out their hand to help their clients see some of the bigger systemic assumptions they're embedded inside yeah i think yes i think this is this is our core job is to help people see the the micro and the macro assumptions that they're embedded inside the ones that um are kind of inside me and then the ones that are influenced kind of between us and then the ones i'm like taking in from the world around me and swallowing i i think our our job is as much as possible to illuminate those and as you say we can illuminate them if we hold them we can see them if we're both in them um and and the uh, you know, I find the ethical question there completely interesting, right? Who who do we think we're working for? Do we think we're working for the person? Do we think we're working for the company? Usually it's the company who pays us. Do we think we're working for the society? And what? how does that change what we're on about? How does that change the sentences that arise in our heads? How does that change the sentences we speak how does this change the potential for us to privilege what we think is most important? You know, like all of these questions are the, I don't, I don't think we're going to find like a, an answer, 
I think the the point of the questions, as Bob Keegan talks about, you know, some some questions are there to solve us. We're not there for them to be solved. We're being inside these questions, I think, is a core piece of our job. I uh, I've been kind of studying um, uh, ontological design recently, and uh, that that is a great field, by the way. Talking about a field that coach because I just started to it was almost matrix like in you know we're talking now about how how is society designed, the world designed, and then it designs us back, you know and. I think it obviously dovetails with developmental theory so beautifully, but just suddenly you just see it everywhere. It's like I'm being designed as a human being. I've forgotten where I was going to go with this. What was the last point that you made? That our job is to help people see these assumptions, that that's a core piece of, we we can't help our clients see them unless we see them ourselves. I think I was saying something like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I don't know where I was going to go, but I, I think um, I'm just kind of like I'm excited by the 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 need for for coaches to be able to expand, uh, like where they're kind of um, inquiring in their own lives into what they're embedded within, and um, then so maybe I'll just pull this up, like in you know we talked about the um, this leadership curriculum for coaches, and I'm just wondering. Um, would you, cause you know, there's, I think a lot of leadership theory has been, um, focused on the individual, like the leader as an individual. And, you know, of course there was like this heroic notion of leadership, but even then I think we, we maybe moved beyond that, but still it, it was just emphasizing the importance of an individual. And I'm just curious for you, if you would feel it would be important for, um, like context, you know, like and and um the relationship you know i hear seeing people now talking about uh it's actually the relationship between things that's really important context uh and then the system like how if you bring those i mean i'm sure you do but like and we're talking about it already but how much do you give those importance again i think each of these distinctions is its own kind of focal point right? That blurs some things. And there's sometimes when talking about the individual is very helpful. It's very agentic. You know, a a client can feel like, oh, I'm finally in control of something. Um, So there are useful things to say there. We're always ourselves in context, right? There's no such thing as a context-free experience, um, experiences always happen in a context and those contexts shape us. One of the, one of the hunts I have my clients go on is to notice who they're being in these different contexts, you know, and how they would describe that, that arising of themselves in these different contexts, because they, then they can really see the way the context begins to construct the thoughts that arise, the emotions that arise. Um, and the the notion that you okay? Uh, yeah, it's, that is so weird. Uh, there's an alarm that goes off in Amsterdam uh, once a month at uh, twelve o'clock, and it literally took over my headphones. That's in talking about technology and uh, 
uh that's weird isn't it so it just an alarm started going off on my headphones it bluetoothed I, into your headphones that's bizarre yeah, and talk about my, context so i missed yeah. actually the last uh, <laughs> like <laughs> but it's a great it's a good example like you say of context and disruption and you Indeed. know emergence Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. It, it's actually the perfect metaphor, right? Because you can be listening to something and then suddenly, you know, the context shifts or somebody walks into the room or somebody says your name in a far corner or whatever, and you completely lose the train of what's going on right here. And you are in that other place. It has like swamped you in some way. And, uh, and again, that's a really useful thing to notice that because it happens often in a much more subtle way than your alarm going off. And we don't notice that we are no longer where we were. And we are actually, for that moment, we're transported somewhere else. Well, and just to build on that, um, I want to come back to context. But what I found interesting in that moment was, um, yes, it went off. And there would be a time where... I would have maybe panicked more, you know, my body would have tightened up. Uh, I might've had a frame that would have been like, this isn't okay. I, I you know, I must be uh, completely present with Jennifer. And uh, we, again, that might've been contracting or, and so, uh, but I was able to just notice and, and yeah, there was, I, I, there was a alarm that came up and literally there was an alarm going off, but I felt like a, what the hell, but, uh you know then that subsided and and then you also noticed and were able to we were able to make it explicit just name it and that all for me is part of perhaps um you know being able to be uh resilient and adaptive in these moments so just it's a nice little teaching moment almost indeed this is this is very much the point of my new book right the the book Carolyn Coughlin and I wrote um which is really about how do we how do we be with our nervous system in a new way and then how do we notice it and begin to help it uh metabolize complexity in a new way and it it does all the things we've been talking about doesn't do all the things but does some of the things that we've been talking about which is you know it looks at the individual level and it looks at the contextual level and it looks at um how am i creating the contextual level right like this sort of um the the contextual level is both created by and creates me right and um and so how do i take a more thoughtful role in, in that act of co-creation. Mm. Well, it, it kind of weaves together, actually, maybe a lot of the things we've been talking about, like you, you're just describing. Um, I, I actually think um, it would be nice to, because you brought in, uh, you wrote about in that book, these different gems, the kind of, um, uh, well, how do you, what is a gem? Like, what, what, how would you describe so the, what that is? Yeah. So the book is about um, the fundamental question of what what in humans is great at handling complexity. Like, what do we naturally have that's fabulous? And the 
And the paradox is that we have a lot of resources. Humans are great. We have all kinds of resources that help us in complexity. And because of the way our nervous system metabolizes complexity, a lot of those resources are taken away from us when things get really complex. So this is not awesome, right? The first news is awesome. The second news is not awesome. This is when we need our genius the most, right? Our complexity genius the most. And so the gems, we call them genius engagement moves. Uh, They are small and large things we can do, we can practice. And there are like, whatever, a billion of them in the book. So it really is a choose your own adventure kind of a book. Um, But there are small things that we could practice over the course of a day, a week, a month, a year, a lifetime that would help us uh, more quickly settle our nervous system when it's affronted by complexity or alarm um, and then build more resilience into ourselves, our families, our teams, our organizations, our communities. I think it works at scale. So I imagine that's something you're doing with your leadership clients is, um, you know, talking to them about the complexity they're they're in and how can they develop this genius in a way. Um, and and I like what I like is like, you know, like one of them is like recognize the urge to action. I really recommend this book to people, uh, by the way, because it's it's really accessible, um, but it's packed full of, you know, I think it's just, you know, I read it and even though I know you'll work to a level, it was just like, oh, this is so relevant to me as a leader in my organization and so, someone who works with other leaders. So, um, but yeah, like, like, for example, one, like recognizing the urge to action, you know, I can see it, how that would fit with our nervous system. Could you explain that a little bit more why that one's in there? Yeah. And thank you for your kind words about the book. This is what we were going for. We were going for something that's practical, um, just useful, and also uh, hopeful. I think the we could use some, some help and hope. Um, this idea about the action urge, um, we really... Uh, dug into this with Doug Silsby, the beautiful Doug Silsby, who uh, who helped us, particularly Carolyn, but also me, really watch how often my nervous system makes me want to do a thing. The sympathetic nervous system, uh, the sympathetic nervous system is uh, the nervous system of action, right? It's the, we call it fight or flight, but it's actually our... Um, our get it done kind of nervous system, right? And it, and and we we might not even notice that we've been activated, and that as we're activated, our first impulse is to do something. Um, I as as I was writing about this, I started to notice that if I got and there were some emails that I would get that I I would begin to answer. I would like. It would be in the middle of an interesting sentence with a friend. I would get a ping, right, from this incredibly disruptive device. Um, And I would check the email and I would not even look up from what I was doing, not even say anything to this friend with whom I was engaging in that moment or my child. 
And I would start to answer this email and I would be several sentences, you know, thumbing an answer to this email on my phone before I realized I was activated. I was like, oh, that's the action urge. The action urge takes us out of where we are. And like, I hadn't even had the thought, oh, I'm pissed off now, but my thumbs knew, right? And I'm like thumbing something away. And that that took me over. And I would notice... I would notice just a billion times I would get this little jolt of activation and my hand would move to do a thing before my brain would even notice what I was doing. And so noticing that sometimes it's a good idea. And often in a complex situation, it's not a good idea, right? Often this, this thing that I'm thumbing, I should go back to having the conversation with my friend. <laughs> this is what, it, this is, would be the better outcome is I finish that conversation. I take a breath. I reread the email, which is basically never as annoying on the second read as it was when I was thumbing my answer to it. And I, I deal with it in that way. Um, but that's not what my nervous system tells me to do. Hmm. Yeah. And, and you write also in the book about how if you, if you kind of like amplify that as well over time, you know, that we're, we're, we're getting uh, these, all these inputs all the time and we're in an uncertain environment, which we kind of live in these days, then that can bring a lot of cortisol. And so, uh, you know, one of the invitations it sounds like is to, yeah, to practice something different, you know, and you invite through the breath and through noticing through the body, um, that we can move into a different space, uh, one that's more uh, equipped for being in complexity. I'm, j- I'm just wondering, like for you with your clients, how that shows up. Do you find yourself with clients inviting them into their bodies, inviting them to kind of regulate before maybe even having a conversation? Or, how, you know, how does that weave in? in a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get to, you know, pop onto the zoom screen with a client and right away she'll start to talk and, Oh, there's so many things for us to cover today. And I've been, I just haven't been waiting to talk to you. And, you know, you can hear from where her breath is and you can hear from how fast she's talking that she's still amped up from wherever she's come from or, just her everyday life, you know, because organizations are very stressful right now. Um, The ones I know of are very stressful right now. And so just catching that, wow, it looks like the action urge is really strong right now. looks like there's a lot for us to do. How can we, you know, just take a moment, breathe together, arrive together, And then from that place, set our agenda together. And even that little tiny, you know, 30 second intervention changes both what happens for us over the course of that time, but also her ability to notice that that's what's going on for her and for her to take a breath or two before her next meeting and not plunge in a thousand miles an hour. And, and then presumably, uh, yeah, that would then help with something like pattern recognition. You also write about that in the book. And 
I also got curious about how you would invite clients to begin to, well, what, why, why, what's the importance of that basically? And how, how do you work with that with clients? I mean, pattern recognition is what humans do automatically. So this is great. It helps us see a system. And then there are all these patterns we don't see that we're blind to in some way. And so what we want to be able to do is on purpose, see those, some of those patterns that we're blind to. Um, and very often you need a companion to do that, right? Very often you need a, a coach or a, a friend or a whatever, a boss who can say, I notice here and here and here and here, this kind of similar thing has arisen or to ask a question, where else does this feeling or this set of activities or this reactivity arise in your life? And people can very often step back and notice it then, but it's another example of like pulling, pulling people out of of themselves. And, you know, we also very often teach collectives to do this together, teams to do this together, groups to do this together, to, to make sense in some way, and then to notice the patterns of their sense-making as a collective. So you can do this at an individual level. You can do this. Um, you can do this at a team level. You can do this at an organizational level. Uh, how are we able to kind of notice both the things that are common among us and also the things that are outlying among us, the, the things that kind of stand out as different. How do we draw our attention to those differences? And the third question we often ask is, and what didn't show up at all? What could have shown up here that didn't show up that, that, you know, that might offer us some information because nobody said anything about it. It's useful. And um, I see if I can formulate this question. Um, it, what do you think about, because it sounds like the a lot of the things we're talking about today and what we're talking about just now with the pattern recognition is inviting a kind of spaciousness, you know, like uh, we, we're, we're recognizing what wasn't seen, what, you know, in, developmental language might be we were we were subject it was subject to us or we were subject to it and then we can begin to see it and that creates a spaciousness and maybe more complexity of of kind of seeing and thinking so that on one side and then I'm also hearing people now talk about uh maybe spring might be one of them and there's there's others like uh, Benita Roy and um uh alexander love i did a podcast with where it's like there's almost like an opposite move into an intimacy with experience which isn't like an abstract like uh, moving out into greater levels of abstraction of thinking and seeing but it's actually more about like a kind of moving into a synesthetic experience or like a uh yeah a deep intimacy with experience and i'm, I'm probably not being very fair to you here because I'm I'm also not explaining it that deeply or clearly. So <laughs> there's a lot of room for interpretation, but maybe you already have enough sense from what I'm saying just to share whatever comes up about that. One of the profound 
places of uh, supporting our clients to have access to a whole new level of information is to help them touch into sensation and like what is actually happening in this moment right now and to name that without without pattern without story without metaphor right just to name that um it is in many ways that is the 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 ground of experience of presence right that's the um that's like the earth of that and um and being able to return to that earth that like the the grounding um holding nature of experience without story which is profoundly difficult for me um you know to to have a sensation and not name it an emotional word or not have a story or not have a because or um you know but to just be in the sensation is its own kind of um difficulty and liberation so it might be this that you're am i on the yeah. right track I think so, yeah. And you know, like just to you you kind of named it this as we started our call, you just you described this walk you did this morning. To me, that I think points to it, like the majesty of of being in nature in, in that moment and, and how it touched you. And and we can feel that, yes. I'm looking out the window at these beautiful trees that surround me. Um but also when I look at you, Joel, right? We are we are some hundreds of miles away from each other. Um, but when we really engage in the act of relating to another person, this is as beautiful as any natural majesty, right? It is a natural majesty. And how do we orient more thoughtfully to letting in the wonder of that as well you know i i i try to make space now for myself this is a a personal comment but i try to make space now for myself when i'm with my with my kids or my parents or my friends or my clients to just let in the the awe-inspiring wholeness of this person that I'm with and let it actually run through my body and feel what that feels like to take in another human. And it's just, you know, it's just enormous. It's enormous. It's a, it's a huge sensation set of sensations that rushes through me. Uh, And, and I felt it, when I got up very early in the chill of the like night um, at the Grand Canyon one morning and watched dawn come over the snowy Grand Canyon. And I thought my cells are watching this, but it's actually available to us in every conversation. It's always there. Yeah, and, and interesting how, as you speak about it, 
I can feel, you know, like my cells coming alive and mm, a sense of wonder and vibrancy in this moment come alive. So there's a kind of transmissive dimension to what you're talking about, which is interesting because, you know, I, I started off with that question, what would you put in the curriculum of uh, a leadership coaching program? And for me, this is actually, this is a beautiful part of that, you know, that uh, perhaps we lost touch with that sense of wonder in some ways, maybe not, maybe we always had it, but that, you know, you mentioned this word whole, you know, and that there's an actual felt experience of that wholeness, not just a, not just a, it's not just an idea that we overlay, but actually as a, as a real experience that um, it creates a different kind of sensitivity and container and, and vibrancy to a conversation than than one if I'm like you know seeing you as uh, someone that needs to develop you know or to you know there's a like you described at one point like oh I, I need to get get a shift there needs to be a shift that happens here or all these things and that, that can yeah can actually close down perhaps this organic natural emergent vibrant wonder yeah and so so the other thing that I think we would have to put into this fictional curriculum, right? Um, is, is actually a thing that I have been more and more centering in my designs of whatever it is I'm, whatever kind of experience I'm designing, which is the, the chance for people to kind of fall in love with each other, right? The chance for love to arise between people. and. I, it's one of the things I think you do at Coaches Rising really well is to create a, a web of coaches, a network of coaches, and to strengthen those relationships. Um, it's one of the things I really care about in my growth edge coaching work, right? But also in my leadership work, but also in my leading work, and also in my home community, right? This, this, this question about how do we create the conditions intentionally for people to see and be seen, for people to connect with each other in some kind of fullness. Because I think all the other things we're talking about are useless in the in the absence of genuine human connection. And even if they weren't useless, they would be a lot less fun, right? Like they would be a lot less of what it is to be human on this planet in this moment. Um, and so I would want people to leave our coaching academy with a, a sense that they have a, a deep network of people they can really like lean into when they get confused or lost or overwhelmed or when they want to be joyful and celebrate. And also a sense that they have been seen and loved in their wholeness, not just for their excellence, but for their all of them. And that and that, that had been the that had been the thing that they breathed 
in the experience. And all these other things were really useful lenses or tools or skills or capacities or whatever we might call them. Um, but that this was uh, the actual air that they breathed inside this work. Yeah. And, and um, it's like, talk about the societal shifts of, it's like almost like one from like excellence to wholeness or, you know, from the human being as a worker and a, like a, 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 you know, a leader achiever in an organization to, to a human being, you know, to a whole human being and the, yeah, the love and unfolding that that can bring seeing someone in that way that shifts. So, yeah, I want to just, um, I think this is time we bring this conversation to a close um, and it's a really amazing place to bring it to a close. Cause again, you know, as we talk about it and notice what that brings out in me, you know, like a sense of reverence and uh, energy and uh, uh, meaning. So I just want to thank you, Jennifer, for being willing to play me. I just wondered if this conversation was a little chaotic at times. I was like, I could feel my podcast host persona come in going has there been enough structure but so i'm just grateful you're willing to play with me in in this space and yeah it's been a really rich conversation it's always wonderful to explore ideas with you joel i i always look forward to this time together yeah and actually i do want to say where can we find out more about your work and uh the, yeah the things you're doing because i know you train coaches as well um, so you can find out about, uh, the new book is called Unleash Your Complexity Genius. You can get it anywhere. Um, you can never walk into a book and bookstore and find it on a shelf, but you can go to a bookstore and they'll order it for you. Um, Stanford University Press, and you can find more about the courses we teach at the Meadow which is the meadow.space or at cultivatingleadership.com, which is where we have a bajillion blogs and videos and papers and book chapters. And if you want to hear us talking about these ideas in myriad ways, that's a, it's a good place to come and explore. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well. 